This is Space Cats Peace Turtles, an unofficial podcast for Leader Games Root. Episode 179, Learning the Corvid Conspiracy, featuring Matt Martins and Hunter Donaldson. Music by Brian Capillis. I have a story to start today's episode. Not Uh-oh. much of a story. Well, it's it's a story with a question. Matt's hot. Have you, Matt is coming in hot. Have you ever donated plasma, Hunter Donaldson? Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. So I did it for the first time uh, this week. I donated plasma Ooh. for the first time I've ever done it. Um, and I knew going into donating plasma that I would... Um, not be very good at it. I don't think that's probably the right way to word that. I, you can't be bad at donating plasma, but like I was mm-hmm. going to be bad at donating plasma. I have in no. The you past, can be bad at donating plasma. Yeah, I've, I've had th- my blood it's... drawn and like had issues and stuff, you know, before. Oh god. Uh, so oh my god. they, you know, they they hit me up. They wanted my blood. I had I had COVID <laughs> back in November, so they wanted my sweet juicy COVID blood that was unvaccinated. Oh, right. Of course, they really yeah. needed that stuff. So I was like, yes, I will do this. I will do my civic duty, uh, and. It takes an hour, first off. It took 55 yes. minutes of me sitting yes. in the chair, which is fine. Yes. Uh, but as it's going, you know, it feels weird every now and then. And I'm, I'm like, accidentally flexing my hand every once in a while. And every time I flex my hand, like, the pressure drops. And then it feels really weird in my arm and stuff. And then we get to, like, minute 53 out of my 55 minutes. And it does a weird low pressure drop. And Uh-oh. then... I just start to lose all vision and I start to go <laughs> cold and then hot and then cold and then hot and oh, and I no. st- and they're like working with other people and I stick my hand up and I'm like um, um excuse-. and I've done this before like in kindergarten there was a rule where like you had to you know you have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom and I once peed my pants in kindergarten because like the teacher wouldn't look at me and I just oh my God. Got there with my hand raised <laughs> and there was even a special rule in that kindergarten class of like we have a special bathroom where if you really have to go it's fine and I was like no but the rule is that I have to stay here with my but hands I want to do it the right way. I... I don't want to do the exception, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm doing that, and then my I'm literally, I have like a quarter size of vision left. Like I can kind of see the person oh walking on the God, other side of the room. Man. And I finally go, I think, I think I'm going to pass out. Maybe help me. <laughs> <laughs> and so they rush over and help me, and it was fine. But uh, yeah, I don't. I would love to do more of that, but also I don't know if I ever want to give blood or uh, plasma again. Yeah, no, that's fair. I did it for a while, and uh, it's it's a weird thing to do on the reg. I was yeah. doing it like maybe once a week for right. a bit. Um, what's odd is uh, I, I, for some reason, was really into listening to, and this was like 2009, 10. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I was really into uh, the Notorious B.I.G. album, Ready to Die, at this time. So, I don't know why. I'm a we- I'm, I just come to things at a weird time. Uh, and I was listening to that every week. It was like my plasma album. And I would listen to Ready to, Ready die, to die while I'm hooked up to this thing that's sucking my blood. So, now, anytime I hear, like, Biggie at all... 
I just think about giving plasma. Uh, so that's my wow. contribution there. Uh, this week, we're going to shake up the order. Uh, thank you to John, uh, last year's finalist in the TI tournament, John, for this amazing suggestion of a thing we should have been doing since the beginning of this show and have yep. never done, which is yep. we're going to start the show with errata. Like, literally here on out going forward this is the structure of the show now and we're just going to spring it on you out of nowhere uh we constantly get questions like hey can you guys do time codes so that then i can know when the errata is and right. it like only it makes all the sense in the world to do like a mailbag segment at the beginning of the show while right. hunter and i so, are like warming up and stuff like why yes, exactly. i don't know why we haven't been doing this yeah it's so i think it makes more sense for you as the listener to not have to listen through a whole episode uh, to get feedback mm -hmm. on last week's episode. It just seems Or to odd. know if we're even going to do feedback, which there's plenty yeah, of times we don't do errata in an episode. And person's like, I listened for an hour, just hoping that there might be some errata. And then you guys didn't do errata. That's fun. Cool. Thanks for yeah. that, guys. So it's episode 179. And we... I think we're just about to actually figure out the show. Yeah. And I, <laughs> you thank you for sticking works. with us. <laughs> It's funny, John just brought that up on the Discord, and the second I read it, I was just like, oh. I have absolutely no argument against yeah. <laughs> doing it this way. And, and it was as if somebody was like, have you guys ever thought about turning the microphones on? Oh, I hadn't. Oh. I had not thought of that, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, see, we've been writing scripts, and then we get like a vocoder, and we type yeah. it into the vocoder, and right. then that says all of it. But we could also just speak it on the microphone. Uh -uh. <laughs> <laughs> so our first errata, uh, our only errata, really, for last week's episode, which there's not much to errata, but there were some questions about like... Yes the draft and the schedule and all of that stuff. So right. I'm actually going to combo... Tournament, tournament structure errata. Yeah, I'm going to combo the Calculating Poet and Rasmus's errata into one super errata. Uh, and these are just a bunch of questions. And this is almost all dealing with uh, the tiebreaker in our upcoming Twilight Imperium tournament, which we, we detailed last week to very, very quickly go over it again. It's at the end of eight hours. You finish the round of the game that you are in. And then if anybody is tied, you start revealing stage one public objectives and the first person to be the only person to score a stage one public objective wins the game. Yes. That is the tiebreaker. Now that left some questions for people. And so here's calculating mode. I have a few questions about the tiebreaker. I think they mostly have implied answers, but thought that getting answers on the record would be better lest these situations arise mid-tournament. A lot of the pod assumed if no one was at 10, there would be at least two players at nine. But what if that's not the case? First... What if no one is at 10, but only one player is at 9? Does the nine the player at 9 wins, right? The episode implied only the tied players, so I assume that's the case. Do they need to be able to score one of the five publics flipped or just an auto win for being in the lead? Yeah, so so if there's no ties, there's no tiebreaker. Um, if you get to the end of the 8-hour round and someone is at 9 and no one else is at 9, then the player at 9 wins. That happened. It happened to be a 9-point game. Yep. Okay, we're definitely That's not going to invoke. We don't love the idea of yeah. a tiebreaker. Like, <laughs> right. we we are definitely not going to invoke it if it is uh, not necessary to be invoked. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Uh, question number two: Two players are tied for the lead at eight points. The first player to score one public wins. This seems to be implied in the episode, but I wanted to double check that you don't actually have to score enough publics to get to ten points. 
Yes, correct. Uh, this is another, I would call this principle the idea that we don't, we, we don't like that we have to do a tiebreaker. A tiebreaker has to exist. And we also don't like the idea of a tiebreaker going on very long. Mm. The idea is just like break the tie and then we're out basically. Yep. Yeah. So two players at eight, the first one of them to be the only one to score one of those publics wins the game, even if it only yes. gets them to their technically. Don't even think of it as scoring a point, right? It's not a yes. point. It's a tiebreaker. It's just and you just keep doing tiebreakers tie. yeah. until someone breaks it. <laughs> uh, question number three. The special tiebreaker publics still require you to have your home system, right? So two players tied at nine, but only one with their home system, then the player with their home system wins, yes? What if there's only one player at nine, but they don't have their home system? Obviously ignoring SAR uh, for this one. Yeah, so it it's normal objective scoring rules apply. So if you don't have your home system, you can't score... Uh, public objectives so in the situation of like uh, two players are at nine only one has their home system it would sort of be considered an auto win but we're not we're not going to ask you to actually skip the step yep um you do that player that still has their home system still needs to be able to score a right. stage one public objective which we can imagine a situation where you know one player has lost all their planets, basically, but they're at nine. And then the other player only has their home system. It's probably not going to be a lot of stage ones they can score, right. maybe none. Uh, and we'll talk about what would happen. Yes. So that, 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 that is important. The home second. systems matters. Basically, the scoring requirements for stage one public objectives are still in play. So then the next question comes up uh, from Rasmus. What happens if, for some strange reason, no tiebreaker objectives are scorable by any tied party? Do you go to tier two? Do you do remaining secret objectives? Yeah, so uh, after you have exhausted all the stage ones, going to stage twos would be a little bit silly because we can't think of a lot of situations where you can't score any of the stage ones. I mean, there might be, okay? There might right. be a weird, like, like the unit upgrade one was scored in the regular game and you could sure. maybe score the stage two. We're going to ignore that. Um, so after you exhaust the stage ones, if the tie still exists, then you go to the unused uh, secret objectives. Um, we think, to, and, and only unused ones. If they're in your hand, no, uh -uh, you don't get to score right. uh, secret objectives that you already had that you just didn't have the timing to, to score out in the normal length of the game. You are pulling from the deck from the secret objectives, and each player can either score or not score the secret objectives. And this is what opens up the thing about the home system. So if home systems are required, what happens if two people are at nine, but neither player has their home system? Yeah. Then you would functionally so, skip to the secret objective step. We don't want to ever say, yeah. like, you just skip it because we don't want people to make the wrong impulse. So in general, act like you're going through the motions. But, like, if two people don't have their home systems, yeah, you do kind of basically go straight to the secret objective because secret objectives don't require a home system to be scored. Uh, yeah. The thing with that, then, is it you don't necessarily, I would say, have to treat it like... Uh, agenda phase or a status phase only but obviously you can't do the action phases and if you look at the agenda phases it's there are three laws in play which would apply to both players regardless and then the other is you get voted so none of those work either so it really is only stat you basically reveal status phase secret objectives until one of them applies yeah to a player yeah, uh, yeah. and this in general i would say the philosophy is basically like we get to the point where there are two players that are tied uh, the rest of the players don't matter. It will never. It, it will never be like oh, and then because nothing went right, then the yeah. the person at eight got to jump in. No, 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 no. All right. it is is there is a tie. 
how do we uh, how do we break it? It's not about scoring points. It, right. It's it's not gonna it's not gonna change anything in that way. It's just like who can who can get one more thing than the other right. so that we can now call it right at this moment. And, and Hunter said two players, but it should be worth noting that it can be three or more players. And course, in which case, it is still in order. So if a player is knocked out of the tiebreaker, they don't yeah. get to go on to the next tiebreaker. Yes. It's not everything. Yes. It's So if you have to, if the three of you are supposed to spend eight resources and one of you doesn't have it, you are knocked out. And then if that next one is two tech and two colors and the player that was knocked out did have that, it doesn't matter. They're out. They've right. been knocked out, out of the tiebreaker. The order matters. The sequence matters here. So it's it is it's random. It's it's it hurts. It's not good. Again, I reiterate, you do not want to go to, to this tiebreaker. Tie you want yeah. to play fast and make your game finish in eight hours. The only way that going to the tiebreaker is really going to be good for you is if you just played so solidly better than everybody else that you are just like covered on right. every front, <laughs> in which case, congratulations. But the whole point of this tiebreaker is to encourage people to play quickly so yeah. that we don't have to do a tiebreaker because they're not fun. Right. They're, they're goofy. Yeah. We are only doing this by necessity of... We have to now do 72 preliminary games. And if the average game time last year was like 10 or 11 hours or whatever it was, yeah. I think it was just shy of 10 hours for every game. Like we can't, that's just, we can't do that. We have to try to get that total game time down <laughs> for our own yeah. uh, sanity and for my family's sanity and for <laughs> everybody involved. Um, so that's it. That's all the errata we have for last week's episode, which means we now get to jump into our root episode uh, because we, you, you got to hear beautiful root music at the beginning of this episode. And all we've done so far is talk about Twilight Imperium. So it's time yeah. to transition into root. Which is our first of the Underworld expansion uh, learning guides, and Ooh. it's the Corvid Conspiracy, and it's the first time uh, I get to take the lead in a while. Hunter has been <laughs> carrying the team for what feels like maybe three months, uh, and I am ready to now take my take the throne again and take you part in the, a guide. You wrote the lizard learning well that, that's that wasn't that long yeah and ago. it's funny that uh so in the lizard guide we were super like oh yeah they are the arborec of root they're really bad um mm -hmm. and i hadn't investigated corvids enough because now i regret saying that about lizards because guess what really hate the corvids hate con corvid conspiracy <laughs> they are not good i, I shouldn't say that actually the, similar to lizards they actually can be kind of fun to play but they are less yeah. fun to play than the lizards the lizards it was like they're bad but i do not care i enjoy this faction it's why everybody right, right. spams dragon emotes in chat it like it's easy to love the lizards it is less easy to love the corvids i agree with that um i do i do think they are very interesting. Uh, I can understand a lot of people listening to us uh, kind of go right into ragging on them a little bit yeah. and be put off because they're like, oh, I like no, I like these crows. I I think that when we say stuff like that, when we're like, oh, they're 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 bad. It's not necessarily that we uh, dislike the mechanics of yeah. it uh, so much as it's like it, it's just a struggle to get a win in yeah. in our group, essentially, as as Corvids. It's, yeah. it's very difficult. We have not seen hardly any um corvid play in the tournament that seemed like it was going to win even though sometimes it like looked like we were close um yeah. there is one game in particular that everyone should check out which is uh game 15 game 15 mm, okay. check that one out everybody should watch game 15 of yeah. the root tournament prelims 
Uh, if you want to see some great Corvid play from Furret, yeah. uh, who is, I think, now my favorite root player. Yeah, so. I think that's probably true. Um, and so the Corvids, and we're going to like, we're going to do some overview here for a minute, but but I want to at least set the framework of the idea that Corvids are a meta faction. If we're talking about learning root, the first four mm-hmm. factions, the base game factions, you can start with any of those four and you are going to, you're going to learn root. You're going to get into it. And then it really felt like River Folk was like a, once you've learned base game, start introducing lizards and, and otters, right? Because they're yeah. a little bit more complicated. They rely on some meta knowledge. The Underworld expansion is like split 50-50. Duchy, which we'll get to in the future, feels like a base game thing. It doesn't feel like it requires... There's some meta knowledge, but no more than what you deal with with an average Cats or Eerie game. But Corvids are like even further beyond Lizards and River Folk in terms of like meta requirements on you as a player. Obviously, River right, Folk order- is like the chief meta faction it's like you right you literally your function is to play the table but corvids if you want to have any chance of success you have to know what's going on on the whole table and how to play it to your favor yeah i i, I want to clarify that it's not so much that you need to have some sort of great meta understanding in order to just make these mechanics work the abilities are actually i think fairly straightforward yes yeah. so much as it's it's not it like like lizards i would say is actually legitimately challenging as far as the mechanics in front of you and figuring out how they work it can just be a little bit a a little bit much to handle i don't think corvids is like that but in order to make this list of abilities add up to you win this game against uh some some competent players that know the game well yeah that's that's it's hard and 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 i think the the reason Matt's saying like, oh, it's it takes like a meta understanding, it takes a, a understanding of entanglement, um, is because of that kind of gap between your ability and everyone else's ability to kind of just shut you down pretty easily. Right. Yeah. Um, to to for our community specifically, if lizards were the Arborek in TI base game, Corvids are the Winu in TI base yeah, game. Right. And that analogy right. means Winu have a singular focus. They really only work if they're going for Mechatol Rex. And Corvids feel somewhat similar. I won't say it's as singular, but Corvids, it's like, you do the thing you do. It's kind of all you get to do is that one thing. Um, mm-hmm. And if the table leaves you alone and lets you do that thing, oh, you can have a great game. There's going to be people who listen to this guide and go, what? I win with Corvids all the time in my group. And it's right. maybe because you have a TI group that is more about the race and less about the entanglement, which certainly happens. A, a it happens root, in tournament a, a games. A root group. A group yeah, group. Your root group. Yes. Um, I, I see it in tournaments all the time, too. It's it. In no way do I want to imply that entanglement-focused root is the superior, smarter way to play root because we have seen tournament games become the foot race, and we often talk about mm-hmm. when the game is either the foot race or the entanglement. And in an entanglement meta, which means players actively trying to stop each other often, Corvids fall flat on their face. In a foot race meta, where everyone's kind of doing their own thing and just trying to score points as fast as possible, mm-hmm. Corvids mm-hmm. are going to rock. Corvids are going to do very, very well because they have ridiculous swing potential in the late game, especially right. if That's left true. alone. So I just want to put that up front so that when people listen to the rest of this guide, just understand we are coming more from an entanglement-focused meta, and that might 
be different than your results in your group. So hopefully we still give you general enough information that helps you learn this faction, but we are learning it from a standpoint of we have to accept that other people are going to look at what we're doing and try to stop us getting our engine online. Yeah, yeah. So let's do some overview. Uh, the Corvid's abilities, you've got, uh, to start with, you are nimble, which means you can move regardless of who rules you're clearing. Yet again, another faction in route where we have all these <laughs> rules for ruling a clearing, and it just doesn't matter. And with this one specifically, it truly doesn't matter at all. Rule doesn't factor into these play, the, into the, the crows at all. Uh, you also have embedded agents in battle as a defender with a face-down plot token, you deal an extra hit. That's kind of a lot of conditions. You have to be the defender. Your token, your plot token has to be face down, which we'll get to later, but face down plot tokens are tokens that haven't scored you points yet. So it's like kind of the earlier side of your engine maybe. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's not really a defense. It's, it's technically the worst defensive bonus in the game. Woodland Alliance's defensive bonus is they roll... Uh, when anyone rolls against them, the Woodland Alliance still takes the higher roll, which means attacking a Woodland Alliance outpost, it's hard to deal any damage at all. You can get zeros and just never do anything. When you attack Corvids, you will do the damage that you do. You'll just also soak a hit. So if you're a faction right. that can take the soak, it's fine. You just bring the extra hit. It's gonna Nothing's going to matter. Um, so all of this means we kind of prefer face down tokens for a little bit while we're kind of getting all of our crows in a row uh while we're setting up we prefer face down tokens and then later we'll start flipping them face up but if as, as long as we can hold out maybe the better that's that's too general to say here but we will talk more about that stuff uh later and we'll describe uh plot tokens yes. in just a second yep. so just let that sit in the air for a moment right uh, and finally, your your last ability is Exposure. This is really an ability that other people have against you. And it is any time <laughs> before drawing cards in their evenings, which means it, it is literally that specific. It's, it's not before evening. It's before even their card draw step in evening. Notably, otters don't even have a card draw step in their evening. So otters can just do Exposure at any time period, basically. Right. Uh, anyways, yeah, yeah. anytime before drawing cards in their evenings, an enemy player in a clearing with a face-down plot token, may show you a matching card to guess the type of plot token. If correct, they remove the plot and ignore its effects. If incorrect, you say no, and they give you that card. It's worth noting, <laughs> uh, if they remove the plot token through exposure, it is still removing the token. It does still score them a point. So basically, if they want to deal with your plot tokens, they don't even have to battle them. Uh, right. They, they, this is a way for players to skip it. Now, they may have to give you cards. They risk giving you cards, but they get to without expending any warriors, and you are notably supposed to be better at defending, kind of, but not really. But they don't even have to deal with embedded agents to deal with your plot tokens is the whole point right. here. They can just um, expose I, you. And I want to I emphasize that you do have to say no. Um, so if you don't say no, then... Uh, it actually doesn't work, and right. exposure gets right. gets. Yeah, gets if you say up. uh uh or nah, <laughs> they get to keep the, the card. You know, they they get to keep it or whatever. It's it it, it right. doesn't work that way. Yeah, uh, it, it is a specific. It's a script. Yes. Okay, you're being given <laughs> a script. call and response. Yeah, uh, and and yeah. a frustrating part of playing Corvids is the need to be unpredictable because of this exposure. Because they just don't even have to do anything. Um. They they only have to guess and give you a, and maybe give you a card. Uh, 
this is the beginning of the idea that to play Corvids means you must play not optimally. Other other factions want to do that big swing hit. You know, they want to do something really climactic. Corvids will just never, that won't happen. If you want to do the big explosion, it's going to be obvious that that's what you're going for and someone will guess it and you won't get the token. So you generally can't go for the most lucrative way of doing a plot. You generally have to take the like half measure. We'll talk about all the plots in a second and how that really applies to them. But the general idea is because of exposure, we never get to like really just crush it with plots. We we have a problem with um, we don't want to be readable yep. because exposure basically keeps us honest. And if um, so, there are four types of plot tokens. We'll get to them. But um, if it is obvious what plot token you are placing down, exposure is a really easy way to just get rid of them. So in building into this, um, when we describe the plot token abilities, they sound um, they sound great and they are good. Um, but the the issue here is you have to remember that people can kind of easily if 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 they read you. Uh, expose them at very little cost yep. to themselves. Yep. Um, so you have to be tricky, right? basically. Right. Uh, so uh, before we get into describing those plot tokens, the last thing to say is their setup is incredibly basic. You put one single warrior in one clearing of each suit. So you put one warrior in a mouse, one warrior in a rabbit, one warrior in a fox, three total warriors. That's where you start on the map. This uh, starts the idea that we kind of start spread out and we spend a lot of the game trying to not be spread out yeah. <laughs> um, so my best advice here is pick three clearings that are all adjacent to each other if if you can pick like a corner you're not oh, a yeah. corner faction right, right. but you should pretend you are for the early game you just want to go be in the corner we'll talk more about opening ideas later much later in in this show but for now i would aim for three clearings of different types that are all clumped right next to each other and go with that there are probably trickier things you can do. People talk about how easy it is for Corvids to like block other factions early game, but it's generally just not worth it because you need to focus on your own early game getting set up or else you're going to be completely ineffective all game. Right. And I would say that you have definitely written a, a Corvid guide that is describing um, a, a sort of like a Corvid approach where we're not necessarily ever going to be the cops. We're not going to try and yeah. block people. So like, like that, that is an approach that is out there and, and f like you can find that info. People have that, but that's not what we're doing here. Yeah. yeah. So let's actually talk about what these plot tokens are. If our whole kind of strategy revolves somewhat around them, um, we need to know what all they do. So first up, you have a bomb when flipped, which, uh, is a thing you do during your turn. So on your turn, when you flip a thing over, you remove all enemy pieces in its clearing, then remove this token. Huge, right? It's it's a right. Woodland Alliance revolt. It's, it is a big deal to pop a bomb off. It's very useful, but it is obviously the most easily exposed if you're trying to do maximum effect. If you put this in a clearing with a lizard garden, a couple lizards, a cat, and a recruiter... People know that that's probably a bot. Like, if, if it looks like a huge threat, they're just going to go and, oh, I'll, I'll give you a card. Is it a bomb? Yes? Okay, cool. It's gone now. You don't you don't get to have that. <laughs> right. Also, um, <laughs> the bomb is the one that everybody's really worried about most of the time. Yep. So, it, it kind of becomes this weird game of, like, people will 
be like, I'm going to check if this is a bomb. Oh, it's not a bomb. Okay, fine. Then yeah, they don't even care if it's not, which generally works well for you, right? That's more scoring potential. If they decide not to go any further, they're only afraid of the bomb. That part is nice. Uh, The flip side of it too, though, is bombs are immediately removed. We haven't gotten into like the scoring potential of plots yet, but suffice it to say, Bombs don't directly feed into your point engine in the way that any of the other tokens do. You you flip a bomb and then immediately remove it, and you you score more points for each bomb on the board. So the other thing with bombs, as a new player, to just remember is if you are flipping multiple tokens in a turn, always flip the bomb last, because right. flipping the bomb first only loses you a point. Basically, it, you you for no reason cost yourself a point. So you should right. flip your other stuff first, and then your last flip should be the bomb because it's going to then immediately remove itself after it scores its points. The next plot up is your snare. While face up, enemy pieces cannot be placed in or moved from its clearing. Um, This is obviously great. This is especially good uh, for... Uh, recruiting and its pieces cannot be placed so like woodland alliance can't spread sympathy there if you place this on a clearing with a couple of cat recruiters you completely negate those cat recruiters this is especially potent against uh the eerie dynasties right if you put this somewhere where they have to move out of because of their decree you can literally turmoil (laughs) eerie if they didn't plan around you well enough generally that's not going to be a thing that they you know they usually have more options at, at their behest but it is possible to turmoil an eerie dynasties player because you don't allow them to move from like the fox clearing that they have to move from or whatever right Um, but the bigger a threat this snare is the more likely a player is just going to kill it and get rid of it and like your warriors are going to end up being more useful anywhere else and so like keeping a couple warriors to protect your snare is always going to be a little bit awkward and with the snare being face up it no longer deals the bonus damage anyway so it loses all of its defensive capabilities so Snares are another situation where it's kind of best being like a mild annoyance and not like a game crusher for somebody. If right, you are really right. ruining someone's game with a snare, they're just going to get rid of it. And now you've lost scoring potential. And that's much worse for you than it is for them. Right. Uh, and this maybe doesn't quite make sense yet. There's a lot of things that we have to synthesize here at the beginning of this guide. Yep. Um, but in general, just remember for our guide, we are really wanting you to keep these face up tokens. Yeah, like yeah. we want you to have face up plots on the map. We want them to stick around. So we're kind of building into our analysis here the idea that that we want these to survive, yeah. basically. Yeah. Well, and also just from the side of, like, you don't want people to want to kill your stuff and get points for themselves. Like, just in general, it's right. never good well, to have yeah, tokens lose that, the map, yeah. period. So whatever. Um, third up is extortion. When flipped, take a random card from each player who has any pieces in its clearing. And while face up, you draw an extra card in evening. Uh, this is huge. Card draw, obviously. This is kind of our only attempt at extra card draw outside of uh, cards that we can craft for card mm-hmm. draw. Uh, so this is a big deal to us. And similar to all other plots, I wouldn't focus on getting maximum benefit out of this one. You don't need right. to flip it on a clearing with three other factions in it so that you steal three cards. Right. It will become obvious yeah. um, because it in in the Corvid world, you never really get to you don't get to place a plot face down and then flip it face up right. You're, they're always going to have a chance to respond so if, yeah again if it's a juicy extortion uh clearing that will be readable and then somebody you have three players and if one of them decides they want to get rid of your extortion they will get rid of it also i think it's important to note that the extortion here really feeds that this is the thing that we place and now we get more card draw on yep. our turn so right. yeah you could go for 
maximum optimal right. i get a card from every player or you could just put extortions down and they can be a, like part of your engine yeah basically. yeah yeah if any piece um is something we just want to have held back and protect it's extortion this is why i want to yeah. start in a corner clearing by myself we're going to get into it later but like i want one extortion that's just like really far away from everyone and is a thing that nobody's going to deal with i want to get two cards per turn as fast as possible and just have right. that rather than look for all these crazy opportunities to do weird extortions and finally our last uh is raid when removed place one warrior in each adjacent clearing now this removal doesn't count when it is exposed but when it is killed whether face up or face down you place one warrior in each adjacent clearing so I'm not especially. I'm actually not especially good at raids. I bet you could hit up community members and get people that could tell you really crazy stuff about raid tokens. I see them as so sort of just a part of the overall engine. Um, they are the least threatening to other players, and um, obviously, if someone attacks a face down token, you get the raid anyways. If you flip it up, they just know it's there, and they'll probably avoid it for a while, and eventually, maybe you'll get to f you know flip it um, or. Uh, activated i should say um but this one is just sort of like part of the like okay cool as eventually we'll get to get more warriors in i don't focus on them too much i get them down when i just need another token down somewhere and i don't want to put my second like i don't want to put something else more obvious down right if i've already got like a snare and an extortion face up you know i the the raid is just a way to keep things a little bit dicey but i, I i'm right. not going to probably offer the best advice on raids here well, I want to I, I want to theory craft something real quick in your in your corner idea, which I love, by the way, I think I, I do think I almost want to play a game where we where we rig it to where we we have a corner on a map where it's all the same um, type of clearing so that maybe Corvid can make use of that. But alternatively, uh, plopping a raid in a corner to give you more options of just building up future um, plots in that corner away from everybody else, if yep. possible. Uh, that makes sense to me, um, and it doesn't even have to be. Again, it's it's not always about being optimal with right. um, with crows because we want to keep our tokens so that our point engine works yes. essentially. Yeah, th this is another situation where there's that fox clearing on the autumn map that the community lovingly calls Texas uh, that is connected to five other clearings. If you put a token there people's first guess is probably going to be, is that a raid token? Because it's like, right. that's the best <laughs> spot to put a raid token. And so you have often have to not specifically not put a raid token there just so it doesn't easily and quickly get exposed by somebody else. Right. So let's get into our bird song just to kind of finish up this overview. Uh, the bird song, you first craft using plots face up and face down. So this is where the faction starts to really come online as uh, a, a functional unit because we're very good at crafting. Similar to how Woodland Alliance crafts using their just tokens on the board, their sympathy tokens. Right. So that means they mm -hmm. can do a lot. Uh, we also can kind of do that. Now, ours is a little bit worse than Woodland Alliance because Woodland Alliance can spread a bunch of sympathy and then they craft after. We only craft with plots that survived the round, and that's important, right? So, again, it's even more important that our plots survive. <laughs> more so than getting anything optimally to happen, crafting, because if we get the tokens all over the place, we can then use those for more points of crafting some coins and swords and hammers and all that stuff. 
that is more beneficial to us than anything else we can do in this game. Crafting is actually very, very important to Corvids, but follows the same logic of you have to protect your plots. You cannot let them right. go away. It's your only scoring potential. Um, it's it's very, very important to you. But luckily for you, it kind of comes easy to you because you can get the, you can generally get these plots more or less anywhere. Again, your Corvids can move without rule, so you can go wherever you want. We will get into the limited action economy that does slow that down, but generally speaking... You put tokens where you want them, and you should focus on putting them in spots that will be good for crafting, not just yeah. anywhere on the map. Like, focus on getting two rabbit clearings so you can craft some coins. Focus on getting fox clearings so you can do the hammer and swords. You know, those are your maximum point potential stuff. You should start getting uh, any sort of token down in those clearings so that you can truly start getting point potential out on the board. Uh, your next step in Birdsong is to flip plot tokens of your choice face up in a clearing with any Corvid warriors. They have to be with a squad. They cannot. You can't just flip empty tokens by themselves. You have to right. have warriors on the map to protect them. For each flip, score one per face up plot on the map, then resolve its flip effect if any. This is where the swing potential comes in for Corvids, right? We flip our first token. It's worth one point. We flip our second token, it's worth two points. Later in the game, you sometimes end up with three already face up, and you have two that you can flip. That's four points followed up immediately by five points. That's a nine-point swing term yeah. just yeah. in plots, let alone the potential crafting you can do and going around the map. Corvids can very easily have like a 12-point turn. That's not crazy yeah. if yeah. they are left to their own devices, if they are, uh, are left able with these plots face up. This is why they are scary to other players. Yeah, and honestly, this is I what you just said I feel like is the cornerstone of our whole thing here. We're almost saying the plot token abilities are um maybe not the number one priority right. of the plots existing. The the plots um scoring you points and helping you have a crazy swing is our number one priority for them. So it's yeah. almost like it's almost like we don't even really care about getting uh, the abilities off, except for, I mean, extortion, I feel like is kind of a backbone to our whole thing here, but the rest of them, I can kind of give them or take them. Um, and, and also now you understand that bomb, uh, as a plot token doesn't feed into the right. engine because we flip it and then it goes away. So we're not keeping that so that next turn we can score even more points. Right. Yeah. So, um, and the other thing too, I, I really love Marcus. The cat has a really good Corvid guide on board game geek. And he drives home a point of also don't overthink that flipping plots for points is like your whole thing. And I agree with that. The point I want to stress, though, is having plots still is a critical part of your strategy because yeah. those plots, again, yeah. feed into your crafting. So no matter what, you have to protect your plots, whether it be so that you can flip them or so that you can craft, ideally both. Um, but protecting your plots is like the main thing you are worried about. And mm -hmm. because your plots can be killed without even being attacked, that's what makes Corvids so difficult to play is it's like critical that you keep them on the table and a player can just waltz into a territory and give you a card and guess and it's gone. So right. this is why we're talking about the meta difficulty of Corvids is, is on a whole other level. Uh, their last step in Birdsong is to recruit, and this is one of their major plus sides. Once per turn, spend any card to place one warrior in each matching clearing. So you you play a mouse card, you put 
four warriors out, one in every mouse clearing on the map. Bird, you pick the clearing you want to do for that turn. But this means they have crazy early game warrior potential. They get way more warriors out on the table than anyone else. But this is immediately, we're going to get into the daylight here in a minute, but Corvids have things that immediately slow that down. You have your own right. ability to kill your own units to do things that you need to do, which really slows down our recruiting. So you're recruiting, you have to find a balance in how much uh, you take advantage of getting a bunch of warriors on the table, or how many of those warriors do you remove to do stuff. Let's get into the daylight so I can okay, kind of... Can I, I got yeah. one note real quick before we get away from recruit. Um, this is just something annoying I've noticed for Corvid players. I feel for you. If cats are in the game, then you cannot, you, you are actually getting yeah. less out of recruit if you spend the card that the keep yep. is in. Yeah. So remember that. And I, to be honest, um, when I first started watching Corvid play, I would see that happen and I'd be like, oh, that's kind of annoying. Now that I know no more about Corvids, I hate that that, ha <laughs> that that is how that works for right. them and it makes me sad for them. Yeah, yeah, it, it can be very, very rough. So you should avoid the keeps clearing, but sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. And and the other mm -hmm. downside of this is it is random. I mean, th this is the like, this is where the lizards side of things comes in, right? The lizards right. are all about what is that outcast that's gonna determine my whole thing. Well, oftentimes what card I'm even able to play to do my recruit is a big deal. This is why card draw for the Corvids is important, but it's not as critical as it is for something like Duchy or uh, Cats or Lizards, where it's like, listen, the, the card draw literally feeds into my action economy. It's not doing mm -hmm. that here, but it is feeding into like, I just need the options so that I can recruit in the clearing I actually want to recruit in, rather than drawing a single card every turn, and that just being like, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to recruit in next turn. Hope it works out. So going into Daylight, uh, our Daylight is very simple. It is that we have three actions, and those three actions can be any of these four options. The first is to plot, which is to remove one Corvid Warrior plus one per plot token you placed this turn from yeah. a clearing with no plot token to place a face down plot token here. So the idea is we recruited four Warriors at the start of this turn, right? Then we plot once. Okay, we remove one of those new warriors. Okay, so we really only net had three new warriors. But if we decide to do a second plot token, that second plot token, we have to remove two Corvid warriors in that clearing. Um, so now we actually only recruited one Corvid warrior. If for some yeah. reason we decide to do a third plot token, we are literally losing two warriors from the map from what we started with this turn. Rather than we gained four and then lost a total of six because we did one and then we did two to be three and then we did three more to lose six. <laughs> so it gets a very, very, very costly, which is why it is much better for us to plot a little bit at a time. One, one, maybe two per turn. If you're doing three, it's because you're like swinging for the fences <laughs> need to win next turn or something. Right, right, right. It's just so it's it's really expensive. Like you, yeah. players get excited about the fact that their recruit is so fun and they're getting, you know, these crows all over the map and the crows can move wherever you need them to move. Yep. But the fact that you spend your warriors as a re resource means that we actually need to focus on how many crows we're getting out there. Right. Right. And you can't flip. You can't place a plot. You can't place a second plot if you don't have two Corvids in an area. And our recruit is happening all over the map, which is that where that spread out problem is. 
So this is where this taking three actions becomes a problem. Let's talk about trick and then we'll talk about, about move and that might sell the idea a little bit better. Trick is a clever <laughs> ability that you are going to probably not use that. I wish I wish that trick was like the key to unlocking the potential of Corvus. Yeah, I right, wish trick was right. a little bit better and that that was like, oh man, if you trick just right, you'll always pull off stuff. But that for me right now, where I'm at with the game, that's not what trick is. Trick is to swap two plot tokens either both face up or both face down on the map so you can take your two secret plots that nobody knows and you can flip them around right but the idea the whole problem with this is you flip tokens in your bird song you plot and you trick in your daylight so because of that order a player you you can plot one turn a player guesses it they guess bomb it wasn't a bomb oh well i don't have any more cards i can dedicate to it and then next turn you want to trick, and then you want to switch the bomb into there. Well, it doesn't matter. They still get to next turn just guess bomb again or whatever. So you can't, right. you really can't do that fancy of tricks. I would say trick is more useful with face up tokens and rearranging those to where the need has changed. Right? I put a snare here. Everybody avoided that snare for a while, and now this snare would be more useful where my raid ended up. Let me go ahead and trick my snare for my raid that's face up. Right. Right? right, That, to me, is more useful than trying to do anything fancy with face-down tokens. Or, alternatively, um, it could be like a defensive measure. Let's say we're yeah. trying to keep our extort tokens totally. uh, that we have, and we see, like, oh, they're going to be able to make a play for this one right here if I switch it over here to the other end of the board where I have more warriors, yep. yada, yada, yada. Right. Same idea, though. Tricks are more useful face-up than they are face-down because you're really not getting any... You're getting very little added trickery you know foolishness uh from doing a face down trick uh, our third possible action is to move uh, and it's a basic move right from one clearing to one clearing but again we get to ignore rules so this is nice but this is where the problem of well we recruited kind of all over my my plots are over in this rabbit clearing i got i had to recruit and mouse this time so i need to do like a bunch of moves right i have four yeah. separate moves i would like to do but i literally only have three actions and i also want to do one plot this turn like i would like to do a plot every turn which means really i only get to do two moves do i even have the time to do a trick this turn like i have too much that has to happen my action economy is so slow and i have almost no way to increase it I, I you spend almost all of your time plot move move plot move move plot move move that's like every single right. turn is the core fits right it's just because that's yeah, all you can afford a, to do right and that's another point against trick really yeah. is that is is trick really that helpful when mostly we just need to move around the board and we have to get a plot down yeah so yeah yeah uh, and our final possible action is of course battle um and battle can be useful but we have to remember that especially with our face down plot tokens embedded agents is better so we are generally better defensively than we are aggressively so we're not ever battling um to be a police officer on the table we don't have enough actions like otters are good police because otters have a bajillion actions on a turn and they can like move 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 battle 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 or whatever like they can do crazy stuff you will never have that option at best it's like move move battle or move battle battle right and like you don't even have that many warriors on the table so battling is something you're really only doing to like hit easy targets right there's a there's an empty woodland alliance token and we're just trying to fish for a couple extra points oh cats left one sawmill a little bit too open we might be able to go hit that and get something out of it um mm -hmm. but we are definitely not playing police officer with battle you're doing battle only when it absolutely makes total sense to do it not when you're trying to risk something for like a big you know entanglement board state issue 
Right. It's action costly to ever battle right. as Corvid because we really want to focus on movement because of our recruitment spreading us out, yep. essentially. Right. Um, so those are our three actions. Now, the only exception to our daylight three actions is at the start of evening. Our first option is to exert, which is to take an extra daylight action. If you do, you do not draw cards during this next step. So exert is sort of the only option we have to increasing our very, very bad action economy. Cats are known for having a bad action economy, and they also only have three actions. Now, they right. can, if they can get a bunch of bird cards, they can increase that. We have no ability to swing that. The most actions we can ever have in a single turn is four actions, and we don't draw yeah. any cards when we do that. Mm -hmm. Now, Which is costly. I also want to point out that even you, you said the cats are similar. The cats have a movement action that lets them move, move twice. twice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they have other right. countermeasures for the fact that they are low on this action. Economy. When they recruit, they get to recruit in a bunch of recruiters at once, right? They can get a bunch, like... We get yep. four things yep. per turn. Cats can easily get to four or five cats per turn and and, it, and and outpace us easily. So things get very difficult for the Corvids in this. Um, Exert also has like an interesting counterproductive timing to me, which is that like early game, before we have an extortion down, let's say, we need all the cards we can get. Every turn we're drawing a single card and we basically need that card to be our recruit next turn because we need to yep. get all of our uh, crows down on the map. So early game we don't really want to exert it would be like desperate measures if we exerted early game but then mid game once we get extortions out it only makes exerting more costly because it's costing us two or even three card draws instead of just the one so yeah there's never like an amazing time to exert the only idea is like if it makes or breaks your turn like yeah you do have to do the exert um, if you ever get into a situation where you have like both extortions out, right, and you can be drawing three cards per turn, um, I generally take the idea of like exert one turn, don't exert the next turn, exert one turn, don't exert the next turn, because three card drawing three cards, you can carry that over into the next turn and be fine. Again, card draw isn't critical to our success. We really don't even need both extortions out. I was gonna maybe include a note about like it's annoying that so many other factions in the game can get up to four card draw. And we can we are maxed out at three. It's just lower than almost every other faction in the game. Mm -hmm. But it's actually not that big of a deal to me, and I didn't want to overstate that because card draw isn't truly critical to our success. Like we've said, it's it it is a helpful thing. It's a necessary thing to have at least decent card draw. But maxing, you know, sitting on two card draw all game, you can survive just fine. Um, and getting up to three then makes exert costly. So it's it's just it's just such a weird thing to play around. But the idea is if you can look at your turn, you'll know if you have to exert or not. I can't give you a general uh, advice on when to exert and when not to. Right. It's It sounds like it's the type of tool you dip into if there is some sort of reward that you can see right now in front of you in order to do it. Because there's an opportunity cost of of cards that we're kind of desperate for so the other thing is like if you look at your hand and you're like you know what i'm good yeah i know when i'm going to recruit right next uh turn i also maybe have uh something juicy that i can craft right i'm feeling good about my hand maybe it's time to exert yeah totally um and so then you draw one card plus one per extortion on the map discarding down to five um i before we you know go to the break and then come back and talk about like opening ideas and crafty corner and everything i want to drive home that idea though of 
the biggest downside to Corvids is that action economy. Every other faction has the ability to do an exponential action economy in some way, mm-hmm. or almost every other mm-hmm. faction. I shouldn't say every, but everybody else is slowly improving their action economy all game. Corvids starts with what they have all game, and you have no way to improve it. The things that you can improve are your point swing potential, but your action economy remains completely stagnant all game, and you have to find ways to work with it. So in that way, kind of slow playing your game, it's going to result in point swings anyways, so you're better off not doing anything crazy early. I would say, generally speaking, there are going to be people who disagree with that and say, you should swing for the fences because it doesn't matter. Your Corvids, you have low chances of winning anyway, so get every point right. as you can get it. That's not what this guide is going to be focused on. So um, Yeah, we're, we're essentially trying to do conservative yeah. Corvid win uh, type situations. And I think, you know, this maybe sounds like we're really kind of kind of down in the dumps about this faction. Um, I think Crafty Corner will kind of bring our spirits yeah, up yeah, again. Definitely. So stick around for Crafty Corner. Yeah. So before then, let's take a little break. And after the break, we will we will start to expound upon all of the ideas we have laid out here. All right, well, here we are. We're back. I hope you enjoyed the ad. Love love a good ad, me personally. <laughs> um, and let's get into the more theoretical analyzing yeah. uh, half of the guide. Okay. Uh, Matt, what are some opening ideas for Corvids? Yeah, so we, we, we left saying, um, you know, we want to try to slow play it, actually. Um, and there, there are a couple reasons for this. Um, but the idea is we are um, better off not over plotting early because again our plotting and our and our ability to flip plots first off we have to remove a warrior from the table to even place the plot and then we need those plots to be accompanied by warriors to flip those plots and score points right so warriors on the map board presence is incredibly important to us so because warrior presence is critical to our success as corvids it is better in the early game to get as many corvids out as possible and the whole idea there is if we're getting four Corvids out every single turn, it is it only hurts our chances if we place two plots every turn in. Because then we've actually only recruited one and we have made almost no gains in our board presence. And remember, too, that board presence is spread out anyways. So it's like that board presence might not even be relevant to the things we're trying to do on the map. Just because we have, let's say, 12 Corvids on the map, maybe only seven of them are doing work. <laughs> the others are like, ah, they're trapped <laughs> over there. I'll get them where they need to be next turn. I'm slowly trying to trickle them all into like the center of my action. I think of Corvids of this like little amoeba where there's a nucleus where I really care about everything happening. And on the edges of that, it's like I'm trying to grow that. But then there's these weird little arms that just grow out in different directions. And it's like, <laughs> I need to pull that in towards the center. I need to swallow that up and get it back to the, to the nucleus of, of where I care about things that are happening. So don't overplot early. Uh, it's, you know, you plot one time per turn so that you are gaining three warriors per turn. Then by turn three or four, now we have a really, really solid board presence and we can start getting a lot more tricky. This is where I think early game, you are literally plotting once and moving twice. And what you're moving primarily is just pulling that stuff out from the extremities in. Um, mm-hmm. There is also a tricky balance. There's a weird balance of how like tricky versus optimal you can be as a player um and and for me i think your very first plot 
should be an extortion, hands down, every single time, no matter what. And it should be that protected corner thing, right? We wanted to just put right. all three of our initial Corvids into a little corner. Hopefully our first recruit was also right next to that corner. Like we picked where we went based on our opening hand with whatever card we knew we would be able to recruit in first as well. So it's like, okay, it's these three clearings and they're kind of surrounded by Fox clearings and I can recruit in Fox immediately and I can pull everything back from those Fox clearings into that corner to protect my first extortion that I play. So that on turn two, I flip that extortion. I don't get anything for it. There's no other units there. I don't care. I'm now getting two card draw per turn and that's just going to feed into my overall ability to do everything. Beyond that... You can start to get weirder, but I, I think getting the first extortion on the board is more important than like having two extortions that you might, who knows, I don't know, like you put something down and you're trying to hope that people might not expose it or whatever. I will, I will go with the reliable, I don't care, it's an extortion. You could put it down and tell the other players at the table, this is an extortion, but you're not going to waste your time turn one coming in to expose it, so whatever. Right. Yeah, so it, in that way, I would say though, a key aspect of that is make sure that you have placed the plot, the extortion in a place where uh, people don't want to go to it yep. because this is a situation. It's funny. We talked about like part of being Corvids is that actually you're pretty readable. Um, this is a very readable move. Yep. So if you put it too close to your opponents, like they will figure it out and then it won't sure. cost them anything to expose it. So yeah, be the, careful with that. The main benefit working in your favor here is the idea that it's early game. People don't want to just start throwing warriors away. And that first plot token face down, that's a hit they have to take. So like right. an early cats or an early eerie probably don't want to take that attack. Cats will have the option to. Um, and, and worse, cats are a big nuisance for you because if you are doing the like, it's obviously an extortion and they're just there. Right. Your first turn right. might have to be like plot, move, battle just to kill the cat that's in that clearing because cats aren't going to want to waste a march going in there but they will just maybe burn a card to predict the to, to expose that ex, uh, extortion because it's kind of the key to your early game so right honestly i hate cats if i'm corvid yeah, to be honest it's like it's just annoying that they're spread out everywhere it's annoying that they hurt my recruits like i just i really don't like it yep um the the last thing too for the opening is all of this idea feeds into another aspect we haven't talked about with Corvids, which is uh, you actually want to stay in the pack or behind the pack all game um, as best you can because you really are best at doing that like last turn swing, right? If you were at like 18 points and everyone else is in that like, oh, 24 to 26 range, who knows who's going to take it on their next turn? It is best for you to be at 18 and then do a 12-point swing run. You're kind of like Woodland Alliance in that regard. So you want to stay mm -hmm. behind the pack, not just because you have the swing potential anyways, but also like you can be dealt with easily so you don't need a target on your back. You, you need one plot per turn because if you do more than that, the players go, oh, he did a lot of plotting. He could flip a couple. He could score six points and get to, to 11 before any of us have even gotten to seven. People mm -hmm. just get mm -hmm. inherently threatened by that. Even though you could be like, well, I'll get to 11, then I'll be kind of stagnated because I don't have enough warriors on the board. They, they won't care, and they'll just start killing your plot tokens. So you doing that early swing didn't do anything for your baseline engine of protecting these plots. Again, it is not about just getting the points. It's about getting the points and being able to let that also score more points next time. Right. The engine yeah. has to get going, essentially. So uh, we want to stay in the pack. We want to stay behind the pack. We do one plot per turn. We do some moves. If we have to battle to fight something off, maybe. But in general, we want to just not be a threat 
to the table at all. We want that's why you also want to just plot in the corner in your own little corner away from everybody. Because if you're not like Woodland Alliance, you don't want to spread sympathy where people are going to go so that they put supporter cards into your hand. You want to plot in your little corner so that nobody's thinking about you. Everyone's working about worrying about their other entanglement. Cats and Erie are fighting, and the Duchy's doing stuff to Erie as well. And Corvids are just in the corner playing their own little game that no one's paying attention to. Right. I also want to point out at this point that that what we're describing here is an ideal for you to shoot for, but the reality, you will not actually, yeah. they're not going to leave you alone. No. Like, to be honest, like, like, and depending on the factions that are out there, the real estate is just going to work out to where, well, they've also now spread out, and, and how are you going to be in this corner? Yeah. So the idea, I think, is to sort of try and be an isolationist Corvid that if you have to uh, plot in people's way, uh, just stay, stay tricky, my man. Right. Stay tricky. Yeah. And you probably have to heavily defend those. It's very hard to heavily defend something early because you don't have stacks of Corvids that are moving it. Early game, it really is like one Corvid warrior kind of all over the place. So your early moves right. are really, really bad, which means early game, we already talked about like, well, it's kind of expensive for them to dig into it because they also have low warrior counts, but you probably only have a single warrior defending that plot token. Right. And in that situation, it's like, well, if I can bring in three warriors, I can deal with that, right? I, I, I right. can come in, I can I can lose one warrior, and then I'll clean up the rest of the mess, right? It's it's not that big of a deal to plenty of factions. And that is true all game long. Even as, as your numbers increase, so do everybody else's. Uh, we right. can talk about how the idea that, like, Corvids get a bunch of units on the map really, really fast. But because it is counteracted by your own points engine and they're spread out all over the place, it's not like you have two stacks of six out on the map. You have, like one or two or three warriors in like clearings all over the place and not all of them are doing anything useful so you really are spending a lot of time just trying to again again get everything back to the center of the nucleus right and just try and keep the heat off you because yeah what what matt is describing makes a lot of sense especially if you're thinking specifically about the early game but by the time you get to the mid game people can if they decide to uh to point their lasers at you uh, they uh, they can get those plot tokens. Yeah. They 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 can remove those from the map. They can, they can take care of you. You are very take careable. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's let's um. Okay. Hang on. <clears throat> it's crafty corner, and we're gonna get hot. Crafty corner. Hi, welcome to Crafty Corner. It's a show within a show within a show. Uh, we are going to talk about cards. Uh, this is going to take a minute because, boy, howdy, we talked about it earlier, Corvids are really good at crafting, which means there's lots of stuff that we can, lots of abilities we can get, and the big question is, should we? So, <clears throat> I want to, before we even get into anything specific to a deck, I want to talk about items. All items are great, and there is almost, almost, no ability I would prioritize crafting over crafting an item for the points as the Corvids. Um, there's plenty of decent abilities. There is one specific ability we will talk about later that is just like, oh my gosh, so, 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 so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, that's the only one I would prioritize over items. So if I had a hand with a couple of abilities and one item, I will take the item. Uh, because yeah. again, our plots are so predictable that anyone, if they want to, can shut down our point engine. So always score the craftable items points while you can before people have decided to just deal with your plot tokens. Because yeah. the worst thing yeah. to happen to you is to save some save, save some points for a swing turn. Ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna craft a sword 
and a coins next turn and then everyone just deals with all your plot tokens and now you have no craftable areas and you don't get yeah. to do any of it so get the points out first uh this is the other reason to lay low in terms of uh flipping plots points because you're probably going to stay with the pack just by scoring craftable item points uh, that that is right. easy to stay in the pack with so anyways with that out of way everything else we're going to talk about is ability focused per deck right okay so let's do the base deck uh first off in the base deck are those notorious favor cards? Yeah, you bet. We love those, and we're actually not too bad at them. Uh, we can uh, every time we recruit, we recruit in one single clearing, right? So it's kind of it makes sense that we end up in uh, these spots. Now, on the flip side, favors are also a huge pain in our butt because if somebody else does a favor, well, we've been recruiting in one <laughs> type of clearing yep. per game. Yeah. So we oh can boy. get absolutely decimated by favors, but we can also hurt others. That tends to be the truth of favors, unless you're vagabond, right? Everybody else, it's like favors rule, unless I'm the one getting hit by him, and then it really, really is terrible for me. So right. I would say that is still true. Uh, the big thing that's fun with favors, though, is the idea if you have, like, favor of the foxes and another fox card in your hand, you can kill everyone in fox clearings and then recruit even more things in fox clearings and kind of double down uh, on that and, and have a bunch of empty areas. Now, the flip side of that is, well, you already had three tokens in fox, so you don't really need to be doing any more plotting in fox. But just to say there's a you can get kind of like a unit advantage in a single area and then clear, sure. you know, move out from there or whatever. Um, so I do. I like favors. I don't think they're like the, they're not clutch you know this isn't the tinker vagabond where we're like get the favors and kill everything and win the game easy um right so next up uh is a category i'm calling we don't really do attacks we prefer to defend we prefer to move around and protect our plots and uh the only time we're attacking is when we do like clearing some sympathy and stuff so we're not good at attacking so why do we need attacking abilities so things like brutal tactics command warren and scouting party I don't have very high on my priority list at all. Uh, out of those three, Brutal Tactics uh, is a little bit better because when I do want to clear, you know, let's say a, let's say a, a couple of recruiters protected by like, oops, cats left like only one or two cats there to protect it. Okay, that might be a time when Brutal Tactics is useful. But Command Warren and Scouting Party, I, I don't really see any benefit to getting because uh, we shouldn't be on the offensive very often. Right, I, I want to point out that w with Command Warren, obviously, we get the battle, so it's not hurting our action economy, which yeah. is nice. But in general, because our our crows feed into our engine, right. we kind of have a high need to have a lot of crows. Now, yeah. if for some reason in your game you get ahead, maybe Command Warren will make sense. Right. Maybe it'll be like, okay, this is actually going to help me close the gap and get a bunch of extra points and improve that action economy. I don't want I don't want to overlook that. But sure. that's kind of a situation where you're doing pretty well anyways. Yeah. Yeah, we have an action economy problem and getting a free battle is nice except for we're just not specifically looking for free battles. We'll talk about yes. cobbler later. Uh but the next category is the flip side of that, which is defense is great. And honestly, I mean, we Hunter and I love to kind of lambast win more strategies. But this is a situation where the more you can bolster your defenses, the better. A preventative yeah. defense is your best tool. So you already have the ability to deal one damage. But if you get sappers or armorers, you can either prevent people from actually dealing the damage to take out that plot token or... You can make it look like, hey, listen, you're going to lose two warriors if you come and attack me with sappers, right? right? It is right. absolutely not worth your investment to come fight this token. Now, that's already generally true, and so people might just come in and expose it anyways, and that sucks. But at least they're not dealing the damage and also killing your warriors so that you can use those warriors to get more plot tokens down later. 
Yeah, I mean, and also there's like nothing you can really do about exposure. Yeah. So like, we're just gonna try and improve the things we can improve. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> right. like, we're doing what we can. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the next category is card draw isn't critical, but it's good, right? So better bureau bank, obviously always good, just in general. Uh, stand and deliver is not bad, but I don't I, I don't love it. Tax collectors is also an interesting one. So in general, if you have the spare real estate in your crafting turn and you have extra cards and you're not going to need stand and deliver to recruit and mouse next turn then cool go ahead and, and build that stand and deliver it, it you know more card draw isn't going to hurt you but i would never choose it over again a craftable item or if i'm low on my card draw and um am so low on it that i would actually rather have the uh the mouse card for next time if i need this specific card you know next time or whatever i, I would rather do that tax collectors though is kind of interesting uh economically if you look at it because um if we craft we, we craft it easier than a lot of factions for a lot of factions doing one rabbit one mouse and one fox is quite difficult to do because you're really focusing on getting stuff in like one or two suits you know if you're if right. you're cats or you whatever. need to prioritize you need to prioritize so that you can we yeah. don't necessarily have to we are prioritizing a bit but we can get enough tokens out where we're just crafting wherever we want so tax collectors is already a little bit more craftable for us and it, this is such a delicate thing to talk about because your warriors on the map really 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 matter your board presence really really matters but we are so limited in that movement action economy that very mm -hmm. often you do end up with like one or two warriors that are just like out in the other corner of the map not doing anything and it's not worth the movement to bring them closer you're too busy doing other things so you end up with just these idiots sitting off too far away to matter <laughs> and tax collectors is a great way to turn that single warrior into a card that next turn turns into four warriors it's great right. economically. Now, I'm not sure. saying tax collectors is like a, ooh, what a primo draw for uh, for the Corvids, but if in lieu of other things to craft, I would totally ta craft a tax collectors because it could save your butt in the mid and late game. Yeah, I have one note about better Burrow Bank I want to throw out there just as a, this is theoretical. Um, however, one thing I like about better Burrow Bank is since we're drawing in our bird song, yeah. um, we can maybe it'll save our butt as far as getting the right recruitment card yes, but also uh it isn't canceled by exert right so if we have better burrow bank early then maybe we can do some exerting in the you know second and third round that we wouldn't have done normally yep definitely um my favorite card in the base deck for corvids is cobbler uh, because again, we have this horrible action economy and we specifically have a desperate need for movement and cobbler is an extra move that doesn't cost us one of our actions. So we absolutely desperately want this. This is one of the few cards in the base deck that I might actually craft in favor instead of a craftable item. Now, obviously mm -hmm. it's two, it's two rabbits. So I'm choosing between it or <laughs> coins. That's a, that's a tough choice, but if it's early yeah. enough in the game, I, I, def I definitely want that cobbler because getting the ability to move my units where I need them to be to protect my plots is significantly more important. Um, having that extra movement might protect my rabbit clearings long enough to still score the coins next turn, right? You can think of it right. that way. So in that way, it feeds into itself uh, in, in a way that is it is useful. So that's, that's definitely my favorite, most craftable ability in the base deck. Um, and then to kind of write some stuff off, Codebreakers, I care about as much as I ever care about Codebreakers. Uh, there's some people that say like, hey, we don't talk enough about Codebreakers. I'm going to continue to do that today. It's whatever. I can look at somebody else's hand. I don't have any specific 
specific reason to need to know other people's hands as the Corvids outside of any other standard <laughs> reasons, I guess. Right. It's it's there's nothing exceptional about Corvids that would mean, oh, we really need to get the code biggest reason I would want to use a code breakers is the idea that like I'm a faction that is on the offensive and I need to find out where the ambushes are. Of right. Course. That's and the whole since point, I'm really. not Corvids, I don't care who has the ambushes. I'm just trying to get my own ambush. And so it's whatever, whatever you have is fine. So I'm not looking for code right. breakers. And the last one is Royal Claim, where uh, if you rule clearings, you get points. We don't rule very often because, again, we're very, we're generally spread out. We don't have buildings at all. We have zero buildings. So we don't have those boosting our rule potential. You're, you're never going to get very many points off of Royal Claim, and it's too expensive for you to craft. You'd be better off crafting basically anything else than feeding into a thing that's not going to actually score you any points. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. It's just not its not our strength, yep. so we can't really recommend yeah. that. Um, so that's all of base deck. Uh, let's talk about Exiles and Partisans. Uh, exiles and Partisans, a slightly different idea within the categories, but uh, first up is the most important thing to us, which is our movement. So the things we really like are anything that shortens the distance within our movement. So our favorite movement abilities to craft are boat builders and tunnels, and that is completely dependent on... The, the map in front of you so i can't right. make a i'm not going to say either one is better tunnels if you get your uh crafting pieces in the right areas you can jump between them cool that might get you to where you need to be boat builders depends on where you're building in relation to the river whatever either of those may or may not be useful to you um right after that is eerie emigre and it's purely conditional and the main reason i don't love it is because i use that first movement and then i either have to battle or i lose the card so i either gained one movement or i forced myself into a battle that i don't again i don't love going on the offensive so right not my favorite uh thing to get i would say eerie immigrate goes up for me if we're in a woodland alliance situation yeah, absolutely get, well yeah we, we don't want to lose our cards though if we're doing that too much right um but if it's a situation where there are you know, maybe some areas where you could go fight at at a limited cost, I yeah. guess. Um, then, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Actually, now that I say it out loud, it's, I don't it's like tough. It it's increasing our action economy, which is important, and so it's it depends on how you use it more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's not really a movement for yourself, but false orders does have some value. I'm gonna I'm gonna lower it compared to some other factions, but the idea of like pushing someone away from your very very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, plot tokens certainly has some value, but you're not doing any of the crazy stuff where you like push something away and that gives you the ability to do something like you're not doing that. You don't care about rule, right? So you're not pushing someone out of a clearing so that you can then move through it, which is like the most common usage of false orders or whatever, um, mm -hmm. or, or making it to where you rule there so you can then build your building or whatever you're not doing any I of that i still like stuff. it though yeah I still, I, I still like it though because it could potentially you could craft it and then find um a defensive reason to use it but let's say like it, it does kind of come down to the wire false orders can always help you suddenly get some some cardboard points that you yeah. wouldn't have gotten otherwise on another weirder note too we're very bad about contributing to the meta in terms of like a policing thing and and that can annoy players if we're sitting one of our goals is to be like hey you need to deal with so and so and you need to deal with so and so and i'm gonna <laughs> sit over here and not help and, and so honestly <laughs> crafting false orders is a way for you to get your hand on the ball in a way that doesn't hurt anything you can craft so it's like well i can easily craft this false orders and then i can help the team get otters out of this bad position or move the eerie off of this thing. That, I it's, like that. It's your yeah. way to stay active and not get the ire of the whole table being like, yeah, well, you're not helping deal with this situation at all. So in that way, it's it's like the thing you can do because you might have a free crafting point 
left over. Right. Um, and then Corvid Planners is completely useless. You already have that ability. You yeah, don't, yeah. don't craft it. It's nothing. Um, next category is our crafting stuff. And these are, uh, if there weren't an even better card, these would be the two best cards to get <laughs> in the game. Uh, Master Engravers, We again, we want to craft every item we can. And getting an extra point per item is delicious. Uh, and League Big of deal. Adventurous Mice, we want to have items. We desperately want to move. If we can turn our items into additional moves, yeah, all the better. So both of those cards rule. Absolutely craft them if you get the opportunity to. Very, 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 very good. Yeah, synergy right there. Yeah. Love it. Also, you didn't mention the the title of that section was called Craft Me Daddy. Um, <laughs> you backed off there last minute, and I need the listeners to know that that section was called Craft Me Daddy. Anyways, uh, what's the next one, the, Matt? The next one is our card draw opportunities. And once again, this isn't a, a, an area where we are desperate for more opportunities. Um, we're not pushing any advantage with more card draw, but we'll always take card draw that we can get. Um, and especially, I would say in, in these two situations, um, anything that means we can exert more often and not be out card draw is generally kind of nice, right? If I can exert right. every single turn and still get a little bit of card draw because I have the right cards for it, that's that can be very nice to turn our three into four cards per turn. It, it's it, it kind of goes against the extortion plan we have at the beginning of the game, but it can feed into a mid and late game very well. So first up, of course, is swap meet uh, swap meet. We love for the same reasons we love better bureau bank, which is uh, better bureau bank uh, because it happens in our bird song. We can do it before our recruit. It's not gaining a card, but we might be able to turn our useless rabbit card into a mouse card that we actually wanted to recruit in. Right. So that's nice. Um, the more situational things that give us just exert weird exert opportunities are charm offensive and murine broker uh if those are just a part of our general card draw economy we might be able to exert more often than we otherwise would have i have a question though so charm offensive does not get canceled by exert even though it's draw you draw the card at the same window because you would draw your charm offensive cards at evening so i am curious there so exert is actually very very specifically worded to say uh, if you do that extra daylight action, you do not draw cards during the next step. It is not a global, if you draw cards during evening, right. it is it is this step of drawing cards. So uh, Charm Offensive is actually outside of that timing window and, and would allow you to still draw that card. So it, it is a safe tool. Uh, next category is our, our fighting words. Uh, and this is gonna follow the same logic as the base deck, which is that defenses are always better than offensive. Uh, offenses for mm -hmm. us so um any partisans card operates as both but is especially nice defensively because uh, it makes any clearing where you have publicly shown you have a partisans card right if you get fox partisans out everybody knows you have fox partisans and now any face down plot token in a fox clearing gets your embedded agents and potentially fox partisans as an, a bonus hit and people have to bring in two extra warriors to deal with all the hits they're going to take so nice uh, very very useful to to get any partisans card out of any kind um informants is weird it's hard to use um it, it kind of goes against it, it it actually does go against our card draw thing it's like instead of drawing cards well i'm already doing an ability where i don't draw my cards but the the ex exception i would make to this rule is if a bird ambush ends up in the discard, it's very, very nice to very publicly 
announced <laughs> that you are getting a bird ambush using your informants card. And if yeah. and now I have a bird ambush, so if anybody has any weird ideas about coming in and attacking my plot tokens, please just mm-hmm. know I have a bird ambush, and I would like you to not do that. Because again, and the reason I say to do it that way is not you you actually don't want to trick people with ambushes you want to not lose any units in the first place um right. so most people deterrent in, that's in, the goal yeah deterrent is the goal and and in a lot of metas people know to bring enough warriors in case there is an ambush right like a lot of times it's very common to do an attack with three or more warriors so that if there is an ambush at least you're still doing the attack or whatever um so ha- but the so the surprise isn't as worth it as just them going, I know I have to bring three or even four warriors into this fight to be able to do the thing I want to do. Uh, that is when mm-hmm. it becomes significantly too costly. And then you're just redirecting them to expose you, and they do it anyways, and you still lose. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next I up. Think it, 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 I don't know if the, if the listener can hear, but we're not crazy about exposure. <laughs> we're kind of annoyed at, like, exposure is, it's odd that there is this, like, workaround thing where people can just go ha ha it it was obviously a bomb yeah exactly uh last up is uh, i want to make a special mention that propaganda bureau is terrible uh it's incredibly expensive uh one of your cards is worth four warriors during recruit and in this situation you are spending a card to kill one of their warriors and only gain one of your own so you are almost always not only do you not want to just like put you don't. You would rather use Propaganda Bureau itself to recruit four foxes. You then never want to use the ability to then cost yourself more recruits going forward. So it's like yeah, all around right. bad. Don't don't do don't do Propaganda Bureau. Um, uh, so finally, <laughs> well, almost finally. Let me get one thing out of the way because I sh- I should have in the I, I'm flipping the order of our outline. Soup kitchens is useless and you should never use it. Uh, it's it. Yeah. You, you don't need to rule. There's nothing you ever need to rule for. Uh, so don't do it. Uh, dominance is terrible for you. Uh, Patrick Leader literally has a bet out there that no one will ever win a Corvid's game in dominance because it's because you're just so bad <laughs> at it because you don't have buildings yeah, to boost right. it. Uh, soup right. kitchens would be your only way to maybe like you would need a bird dominance and soup kitchens and plot tokens in those two corner clearings to maybe stand a chance. And even then, I don't like your odds of getting that yeah. dominance victory. Uh, so that aside, the supreme combo, the amazing thing of Corvids, the best, maybe my favorite combo in the whole game, outside of like how Otters interacts with this, is Coffin Makers. Coffin Makers rules. If Otters is one of your opponents in this game, Otters are a difficult opponent for Corvids, but them existing while you get Coffin Makers is choice. <laughs> it's very it's cool. Good. Um, so yeah. Coffin Makers obviously is as warriors are removed um, and placed back into supply. They instead go to your coffin makers card. So our whole engine of placing plots and removing a warrior from the board does that, right? We mm-hmm. when we remove them from the board, mm-hmm. we just put it straight into coffin makers. So we removed a thing from the board so that later we can score a point, and that thing we removed from the board is also going to score us a point. Also, we have embedded agents. When people decide to attack us instead of try to expose us, they're definitely going to lose one unit, which is another point for our coffin makers. We are just like this coffin maker engine that goes crazy in the game i mean you you can get like two points almost every single turn with coffin makers if if, if it's you and otters in the mix it, it gets ridiculous uh coffin makers is very good and we are definitely looking for more point scoring opportunities outside of our plot tokens and outside of crafting so definitely favorite card and saboteurs you want to get saboteurs right away 
even on the off yeah. chance that you even if you don't know you're going to get coffin makers craft a saboteur as fast as possible because if you get craft coffin makers you definitely want to saboteur someone else's saboteur so that they can't saboteur your yeah. coffin makers yeah. keeping your coffin yeah. makers is amazing and everyone will definitely want to get rid of it right yeah i mean they'll have they they will literally have to i think the only um situ there, there are like two situations where i can imagine uh corvid's kind of easily winning a game one the other three players get so entangled with each other right. that things just spiral out of control and Corvids are able to kind of sneak a victory. And then two, uh, Riverfolk and Corvids are in the same game. They get Coffin Makers early and they keep the entire game. Yeah. That That is a dynamite uh, formula right. right there, I feel like. Definitely. Yeah, I, I would almost, I would pick Coffin Makers over any craftable item. That That's the one situation where I am definitely pro get coffin makers on the board yeah. don't worry about crafting yeah. anything else that's going to be worth so many more points in the long run uh if you can hold on to it obviously if someone like already has the saboteurs out though that becomes a difficult equation but that's a whole other conversation about the meta of coffin makers writ large so whatever um okay so let's get into some pitfalls here uh <laughs> boy we've sort of been covering this whole time though but it is important to uh, sort of lay them out uh first up our own mechanics work against ourselves. Uh, and understanding that balance is very difficult. Uh, and it's easy to waste an entire turn because you threw off your own balance. The sort of balance I'm talking about is that, like, I overplotted and now I don't have enough warriors to even defend the plots that I have, which means people are going to be or able to flip come them. in. Yeah to, yeah, to to flip my plots. And then people are going to easily clean up my plots. And that means all of the plotting I did that also killed my warriors didn't net me any points and didn't put me any further ahead. And now I'm, like, right. crazy far behind. Taking yeah. those kinds of hits are way too much for crows to deal with. So you have to slow play everything. Other ways that your you your abilities hinder themselves is again that movement problem. I only have three actions, and I'm every time I recruit, I'm recruiting kind of everywhere, and so I have to spend extra movement just to get my stuff where I need it to be, which burns my very very limited action economy. So if anything, Corvids are like the best balanced faction. They did an amazing job. The problem is they let other factions have little fun imbalances that make them crazy swing potential and do really, really <laughs> cool stuff. And Corvids don't have that, which puts Corvids way below everybody else. If everything was as balanced as Corvids, it would be amazing. This game would be beautiful. It'd be this crazy. I mean, it's already beautiful. I'm not even downplaying it. But it's like if everything had this perfect, you know, yin and yang to it. It, the, the game would be this crazy mechanism that you're everyone's battling against themselves and also their opponents right entanglement is like written into the corvid's faction yeah. sheet <laughs> with the whole exposure thing the fact that there's something on the corvid board that isn't for corvids that is literally a rule for everybody else to hurt corvids that is the most root stuff yeah. ever <laughs> and it's like more root than the rest of root yeah. in my opinion <laughs> But it, it does feel like it's it was like finally the idea of entanglement got so far into the game that now it's embedded into the the fiber yeah. of this one faction. Exactly. It actually is awesome. I mean, it's really cool. Right. It's just, it, it is a shame. I want to say something about exposure before, because uh, I can kind of already hear people being like, oh, exposure's not that bad. Like, people end up giving you cards and stuff. And we're obviously talking about a situation when it comes to exposure, the fact that there is a backdoor uh, into getting through your plots, that potential is is what we are upset about. So, uh, like, how do you fight against that? Uh, some people don't look 
at what plots yeah. they put down. Right. They just put down random plots. Yep. And honestly, seems kind of valid to me personally. We don't want any logic to the plots if you're going to play that way. It, you're just basically saying like, I don't want to be readable because I don't even know. Yeah. But it is a it is a shame because it feels like it works against the utility of the various plot tokens right. that if you try and specifically use a plot in a specific clearing, then generally speaking, uh, people can read it. So obviously you have to do the unexpected thing. Right. Well, if you do the unexpected thing, sometimes you don't really get that much out of yeah, it. Though, either, you're not getting you know? that many benefits. The, the bigger problem, too, is they're so easy to compare to the Woodland Alliance. Um, yeah. and, and if we do that, the way you deal with the Woodland Alliance is you clean up the sympathy and then you have to lose some cards or let the Woodland Alliance draw some cards, right? And in that situation, those cards go into the supporter stack, which immediately benefits the Woodland Alliance's next yeah. turn yeah. in replacing that sympathy. In the Corvid situation, you can give me a bunch of cards and those cards in no way fix any of my problems. They do not improve my action economy. All they do is maybe you gave me some craftables, but you got to choose what card you gave me. Exactly. So it doesn't it just none of it matters because you can give me your trash cards that you know I don't want and I may not even get them anyways if you guess correctly and even in getting them I haven't fixed anything that helps me get my next plot token down easier. If it was instead like a way to to like they got to recruit a warrior if you got it wrong or whatever, that would be like the engine that feeds itself, right? I get a plot token down. If you guess wrong, I put a new warrior there. And now I have more Ooh, warriors yeah, on my like feed next. I'm not trying to like do design a new game, but I'm saying that's the difficulty of Corvids is people playing against you doesn't feed into your ability to build yourself back up like it does with a lot of other factions. Right. Right, and I want to say something right now, though, because you you triggered this in me, because um, I am seeing this happen all over the place. Uh, people playing against Woodland Alliance. If you are in the mid game, or you in the <laughs> and you or you are in the late game, uh, you are not always supposed to kill supporters. Yeah, like I I see it happening so often, where people are like, oh, we got to stop the Woodland Alliance, and I'm looking at like their supporter hand. And, and they've got a bunch of supporters already out. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure they can't quite do anything win. Else. Yeah. And then they're like, well, we got to stop them. How do we stop them? We kill all their supporters. I'm like, well, now I think they might be able to win because yeah. <laughs> you just gave them so many cards. Right. Okay. So actually, literally what Matt just said, don't always do that. I'm seeing way too much of that. All right. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> that was, that was just a random soapbox. So yeah. all of this is to say we are incredibly easy to police. We have a low unit count in individual clearings. So people can fight through us if they want to. And our defensive bonus doesn't even actually prevent people or prevent us from losing our plots, right? It only mm -hmm. adds the damage that they're going to take. So again, it's that meta cost. We have to look at the person and go, you sure you want to do that attack? You want to lose that many warriors just to deal with this thing? Um, mm -hmm. And if our bad defenses weren't enough, players can just opt to expose us and have a one have a 25% chance or greater of guessing correctly. Um, and the worst part, and this is something that happened in a recent game with Hunter and I, Hunter had a duchy uh, on lake map that wasn't getting the raft taken away from him. So he was getting card draw like it was oh just God. nothing. It was nuts. And that, yeah. that, for him, with a comfortable card draw, removing, exposing my tokens was a free action for him. He just, <laughs> he had like seven cards per turn and just was like, yeah, I'll, I'll burn some cards exposing it. I'll figure it out eventually. I can, I can literally do four to get rid of this, whatever it is. I did three at yeah. one point. I did, because I really just didn't want to deal with it. And, and so, and that was probably too many. Well, but, but and in I a four player game, if people are really threatened by, you know, if you're doing like a one flip per turn idea, 
but it's like I mm-hmm. have four on the map and I have one there. There are three different players that can all get into that clearing and try to expose yep. you. You are not flipping that token. So that's why the late game does turn into an issue of like, now you do need to start dropping a bunch of extra plots because you need too many targets for the board to deal with, right? That's when this whole strategy turns on its head. We slow played so that we have a ton of warriors on the map. And then in the late game, we can burn those warriors a little bit too fast because now it's a focus on, I need more plots than you can handle. Right. Well, and also I think it helps if we are helping create a situation where the the entanglement gets all messy because one other player besides you might win yeah so honestly i mean this sounds like maybe this is maybe a race to the bottom type thing but i think the idea is to sort of get yourself in a situation where it's almost like a king makey win makey thing Mm -hmm. um and then have it be you right hey that's my (laughs) idea (laughs) that's our best bet where do we find our victory just freaking luck into a king making situation bud (laughs) That's, that's your best bet no, uh, where do we find our victory is, I-, I would say, play thematically. Lay low in the shadows. You are you are a slithery little... Uh, slithery? Whis- you're whispering into the ears of, of the others. I can think of a faction so that slithers low. a little more. <laughs> and, and you're hoping for a gigantic swing round late game. You're not looking like a threat for a, a bunch of the game. If the players know how to read the table, they'll know you're a threat anyways, but maybe you can avoid it by just staying low enough in the points that they don't they don't worry about it, and then you come out with a really, really big swing. Um, you do need to get a few necessary face-up plots, like an early extortion. Sometimes you can use an early snare as like a border wall so that people can't move through it into like the rest of your important stuff. But then from then on, focus on defending face-down plots for larger point explosions. Um, If you're doing a single plot every single turn, like we described, at a certain point, that becomes too easy for the table to deal with because there's only one plot on the table they need to try to expose. So you do early single plots so that you don't lose all your warriors, and then once you have a good warrior stack, you can put down multiple plots so that everybody has to work together to deal with all of it and it might be too much um, and they will <laughs> they, they, they will, will. <laughs> they'll pull it off and exposure makes it quite easy but it increases your odds of not getting totally decimated by that and you have to do everything right. you can to prevent your plots from being obvious um it gets you cards which can be kind of nice to make recruiting decisions easier but more than anything you hope it gets you more craftables but if anybody's smart they're never handing you a craftable item as the item they're using to try to expose you uh, they're they're generally not that desperate to expose your your sure. your plot token, especially if all they have to do is make sure it's not like we just said earlier. Is it a bomb? No. Cool. Whatever, man. You can raid me. I I do not care. Um, just as long as it's not a bomb, I'm good. <laughs> is is the, yeah the general mentality. Um, the big thing is the meta play of you have to sell the idea that everyone else is a bigger threat, and you have to organize the police of the table, and you have to try to be the player that isn't policing the table, which is very hard to do. It's hard to be like, That's you a weird do this, one. Yeah. And you do that. I'm going to sit over here and not help at all, and everyone goes, well, screw you. I'm not, I'm not going to do your bidding, but if you can show them the entanglement, you have to play into entanglement as Corvids, and if you can do that, you can get everyone worrying about each other more than they worry about you, and you only step in when you have to. You play ball if you must um just to look like you're the responsible adult at the table or whatever like hey mm-hmm. listen guys look i'm gonna go i had a game where i did that at one point i did do a police action and then i immediately regretted it because it was a police action i maybe didn't actually have to take and i was only doing it for like the visuals of it and then the next turn i was like man if the i hadn't optics. done that i could have had an extra plot down and i could have scored more points and maybe one who knows mm-hmm. yep yep well yep 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 well the big yep. thing too is and again 
crafting craft you gotta you, you have to score non-plot points plots are only going to get you so far so coffin makers uh crafting clearing up tokens that are easy to get definitely find opportunities to do all of those things and fo focus on those your plots are only in service of those other points actually is the way to think about mm -hmm. it your plots will score some points hopefully if they stayed protected but they're so easy to clear, you can't rely on those. What you have to rely on is protecting plots that will let you craft stuff and protecting plots that let you defend certain areas of the map so that then you can burst into this next wave or whatever. Like you, you, you have to just be so, so, so careful um, that scoring points elsewhere is almost more important than the points you hope to get from flipping your plots. Yeah, and uh, I just want to emphasize, this is where Corvid's is at right now yeah. uh as in this is uh i think the i matt try like really tried to find something that that works really solidly and we have decided to go with a conservative approach for this outline if for some reason the style changes if there's some sort of um someone finds the perfect little way to to kind of shake it up or you know or if leader even i'm not saying leader would change something about corvids well, itself but they might there's an advanced setup yep. coming there's like other things that could change um i could see us revisiting the corvids yes, um, as far as how we talk about them and stuff yeah, so th there's a lot yeah. of talk right now that advanced setup might do some changes to corvids setup that puts them on a much better footing right out the gate um, yeah. And just the other inherent changes to everyone else's setup might have positive impacts on Corvids we don't know yet. So um, this Marauders expansion that's going to come up here soon could really shake things up. So if anything, uh, we, we, we are going to here soon finish eight learn to play guides that are no longer relevant if you have the Marauders expansion. <laughs> Who knows? We'll Yay. see. But whatever. We're, we're doing it as we go. That's why we're doing these in the order of what we assume you might get the expansions in. However... Just to just to get into it for a second, I think Marauders is going to become the new best fact, uh, best um, expansion to get first. Like base oh, game, yeah. then Marauders, then take your pick, Riverfolk or uh, right or Underworld. So yeah, I mean, advanced setup is so exciting. Yeah, and it's really um, it's it's just interesting that uh, they're willing to now look at sort of the way they have built it out and sort of go, you know what? Uh, this setup order thing yeah. we don't need it anymore right like let's do right. it different well and the addition of minor factions is going to be a big deal too they're, yeah. they're investing yeah. in lower player count it's going to make your root box more playable to have the marauders expansion so yeah anyways yeah. thanks leader games for sponsoring us that was a that was not part of the ad that was just us being really oh, hyped for marauders so, i mean i'll tell you this much it is easy to push their stuff yeah. like the marauders <laughs> is so exciting yeah. and leader is so good at actually engaging with people playing the game and then being like you know what you know it'd be cool to shake this up like i don't know there's just such a yeah. experimentation and uh and it's just great and i'm very excited for the new expansion and it makes me feel good that we've been covering the game thus far even if this expansion comes out and ruins all the <laughs> stuff we've done <laughs> i'll be excited to do it again all right i want to thank our weird bears Farganess, TG Welch, Brian, BotBot, Kaluin, Squeamish Emu, Sonaletto, Mate Nason, John, Rwise, Absol, and Ponchadori. And I want to thank our little Peace Turtles, Naderade, Patience is a Virtue, Polyphony, Requiem, Gaskio, Uncle Baddy, Dark Jutsu, Istoria, Brave Sir Robin, Frank G. Carnal, my son is also named Bort, CAC Jr., Anvalir, Samley, and Alice. Thank you. Yo, okay, so Galactic Council second round poll is up. It is out. Your two choices are 
Uh, first choice, rev we review the Fractured Void, which is the TI book um, that I need to read in a matter of days now. Yes. Um, because <laughs> and you all have to vote episode. on it in a matter of days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically. Um, your other choice is Root Tournament Analysis. Uh, don't feel, I'm not trying to sway you toward like, a, like I want to review the book. That, yeah. That's a cool one. I mean, I also would be down for a root tournament analysis. Um, I'm not trying to sway you in saying that I need to re read this book really fast. I am reading it this week, regardless yep. of what happens. Even if no one votes on review the fractured void, I am reading it right. now. So there's nothing you can do to stop me. Um, homebrewers guild, uh, m more public objectives, please. Actually, there are plenty, um, now that I think about it, lot. there's actually a lot uh, in there. And I'm going to have to comb through all of that and get it integrated into the mod. Um, I think for uh, for the sake of me actually getting a little more time with, um, with the game this month, I actually haven't been able to play a lot in February, yeah. just in general, which is kind of bumming me out. Um, I am going to push the Homebrewers stream back to the 26th. So it'll be uh, mm. February 26th, uh, Friday, um, and it'll be in evening-ish time. I have to get my players together. Um, so next episode, you will hear the exact time if you're looking uh, to check that out. And also this Saturday, yep. um, we have the Root Finals, uh, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, that's on February 20th um, at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time, 21 100 UTC. Is that a good yeah, way to say that? That's a, a sure. I, I'm very excited for this because we had some crazy semifinals, which, as we've always seen in, in our TI tournament in the past, is every time we finish a semifinals, I'm like, man, those games were crazy. Now I'm really nervous that the finals won't be like as explosive. And then both years that we've done a TI tournament, the finals are like definitely the best game of the tournament, which just gets me super jazzed for how crazy this upcoming route finals might be. I'm, I'm very excited. We, we Especially game three of the semis. If you didn't watch game oh three God. of the semis, Hunter and I ended the match similar to how we ended last year's TI finals. We were just screaming. I mean, I, I was three, doing a lot of screaming, but it was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> game three of the semifinals this year uh, is, is going to be tough to beat yeah. as far as the finals go. Yeah. Um, so I hope all of our finalists hear that and are ready to bring... Uh, their A game, but totally. man, game three of the semis is good. Speaking of which, on the YouTube this week, um, every day, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'll be re releasing one of the semifinal games in the lead up to uh, the yeah. finals, and then the turnaround on the finals will be super fast. That'll be like on the YouTube, like the next day or right. two. Right. So there you go. Uh, if you would love to do us a little favor, you can give us a rating on this show. Give us five stars on Apple uh, Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Uh, and that helps kind of boost people's knowledge of our podcast and of TI and of Root and of everything. Uh, you can also find more information about our Patreon, our Twitter, our Discord, all that stuff uh, at spacecatspeacedurtles.com. What's, uh, what's the kind of moment of zen for this one? <laughs> You know what, how we sort of do? do. What would we do if we had like a moment of Zen, like a, a an un, an like no context moment from the community or something? Um, I mean, I guess I think the closest thing we could get to a moment of Zen style segment would be ending every episode with Manta time. Um, <laughs> and if you don't know what Manta time is, I can't really explain it to you because I don't really get it. But uh, it's a thing that happens. Uh, nightly on the discord and i promised i would talk about it eventually and here we are um so manta time from what i understand is a time where people post pictures of mantas but yeah. uh, let me tell you something i got a feeling there's more to it than that 
and I that I just don't know how it deep deeper. it goes. Yeah. Uh, but I guess it's just a joke that's gotten so out of control. We're having to like it's like a it's like a raging fire in our Discord that we're yeah. trying to quarantine to. It's what like scares a, it's like me? a pandemic, honestly. Sure. <laughs> what scares me is what you've just done is like chucked a pail of gasoline on like by doing this yeah. right now this bit you have now <laughs> i already burnt, promised like, people that i would talk up. about manta time <laughs> i i wish i could hear someone like how do people when people are saying manta time out loud which i yeah. imagine i mean it's like at nighttime essentially the way it works is it's just a lot of people typing the words manta time sure and posting pictures of mantas and I have to imagine that they're all also saying Manta Time out yeah. loud. I bet it. Like here's how I think it goes. Here's it. Ready? Here we go. <clears throat> <laughs> Man, Manta Time. <laughs> Let it go, baby. Here we go. <laughs> Matt, you're trying to mock them right now, but I love this. Like this I is. I don't I, think. I hope that wasn't mocking. That was my legitimate impersonation <laughs> of how it goes. I hope it's like, I hope it's more like, uh, I hope it's like, uh, I hope it's like this. I hope it's like, uh, uh, <laughs> 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 Thank you for listening to Space Cats Peace Turtles. Thank you to all our patrons, and thank you to Brian Capillus for the use of his music. You can find more at wanderinglake.bandcamp.com. Mm-hmm.